Psalm 69. Save me, God, for the water has risen to my neck. I have sunk in deep mud and there is no footing. I have come into deep water and a flood sweeps over me. I am weary from my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My deceitful enemies who would destroy me are powerful. Though I did not steal, I must repay. God, you know my foolishness and my guilty acts are not hidden from you. Do not let those who put their hope in you be disgraced because of me. Lord God of armies, do not let those who seek you be humiliated because of me, God of Israel. For I have endured insults because of you, and shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons. Because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. I mourned and fasted, but it brought me insults. I wore sackcloth as my clothing, and I was a joke to them. Those who sit at the city gate talk about me, and drunkards make up songs about me. But as for me, Lord, my prayer to you is for a time of favor. In your abundant, faithful love, God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the miry mud. Don't let me sink. Let me be rescued from those who hate me and from the deep water. Don't let the floodwaters sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Don't let the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, for your faithful love is good. In keeping with your abundant compassion, turn to me. Don't hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Come near to me and redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know the insults I endure, my shame and disgrace. You are aware of all my adversaries. Insults have broken my heart and I am in despair. I waited for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but found no one. Instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table set before them be a snare, and let it be a trap for their allies. Let their eyes grow too dim to see, and let their hips continually quake. Pour out your rage on them and let your burning anger overtake them. Make their fortification desolate. May no one live in their tents. For they persecute the one you struck and talk about the pain of those you wounded. Charge them with crime on top of crime. Do not let them share in your righteousness. Let them be erased from the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. But as for me, poor and in pain, let your salvation protect me, God. I will praise God's name with song and exalt him with thanksgiving. That will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with horn and hooves. The humble will see it and rejoice. 
You who seek God, take heart, for the Lord listens to the needy and does not despise his own who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. They will live there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will live in it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm also one of the pastors here. Uh, would you please join with me in prayer before we continue to reflect on this psalm? Father, we, we give you thanks that, uh, that you know our suffering, you know our sorrows, you have become one of us in Christ, and and you invite us to come, no matter where we are, no matter how we feel, no matter what our difficulty is, and, and name our sorrows before you and bring them to you. And Father, thank you for these psalms that give word, that give direction to, to how we are to respond to the anxieties that we face. Lord, I pray for us this morning uh, that you would help us uh, to hear what you have to teach us, that you would train us, that you would shape us, that we be renewed through Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a number of weeks ago, we began our series that you see at the, in front of our, on the bulletin cover, we're calling the Songs of Jesus. And, and one of the ways we saw the Psalms begin was it offered us the opportunity to become like a tree. Blessed are those, we're told, who meditate on God's Word day and night. They will be like a tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit in due season and whose leaf does not wither. You can become a tree, we are told. Which I realize perhaps just in the face value of it maybe doesn't seem like the most exciting opportunity. I mean, um, you know, like when six-year-olds interview Johnny, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a tree, said like no one ever. This is not necessarily the thing that we immediately aspire to, but I want us to actually try to move from just the tree imagery to seeing what what kind of life it's talking about. And so I thought I'd just start by thinking a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul, as some of you know, was one of the great missionaries of all time. He, you know, much of the New Testament is written by him. But, but one of the things I find most extraordinary about Paul is his resilient joyfulness. There is this moment um, that we see when Paul is writing one of his churches that he's very connected to, some of his friends in Philippi. And we see that he's actually in a very bad situation. It says that he is in prison, which means he is chained day and night to someone, which is like the church planter's worst nightmare. Because think about it, this is the person who wants to go wherever he can go to tell people about Jesus, wherever, just to travel, to engage, to speak in the synagogues, and he is stuck here, thwarted from what he most wants to do. And to make matters worse, there are other other. Christian leaders who are jealous of him and are using this time where he can't really speak for himself to say bad things about him as they're continuing to share to the world about Jesus. And I would imagine for Paul in a situation like this where he is isolated from his companionship, his friends, he is stuck in a place where he doesn't understand why, there's probably confusion, there's frustration, that there must have been times that he felt really, really low. And yet, one of the remarkable things in the letter to the Philippians is, is what he says to his friends. He says, 
I want you to know that I'm doing well. Actually, he says, I am rejoicing. Here, here's the good news. I have a captive audience, and so now the entire imperial guard know about Jesus. And, and I know people are trying to spread bad word about me, but they're doing it while they're talking about Jesus. So there's something great about this. So, so he concludes when he's explaining about it. He says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice which is extraordinary to me that he could say that, and, and he's not just kind of like stiff upper lipping it here. He, he's being sincere. Paul will not hide the difficulty of his situation. Elsewhere, when he's talking to another church, he will talk about how we are afflicted in every way. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been mocked, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed. Paul often doesn't understand why God shuts certain doors or allows certain things to happen but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. This is resilient joyfulness, and this, I would like to suggest, is what's being talked about when it speaks of a tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. The reality is, and I think most of us know this, or if not, we will know this, Suffering in this life is inevitable. The only way that you will escape loss of loved ones is if you die early. Almost certainly, you and I each will experience times of failure that can devastate us. We will experience disappointment. We will experience heartbreaking grief because that is what it is to live in this world. The question is not whether you and I will experience these things. The question is what will become of us when we do? Will we be crushed? Will we be brought to bitterness and despair? Paul shows us that there is another possibility, that, that even in the worst of situations, it is possible to live meaningfully, fruitfully, even in the worst moments to experience a real kind of joy. And what the Psalms are teaching to us is that is not just some sort of superpower of Paul. That is something that is offered to you and to me. It is the life that is described by the tree planted by streams of water, and it is offered to all of us, and the way to find it, we are told, is through singing the songs of Jesus. That is, as we've said before, what these Psalms are. The Psalms in every different direction point us to this son of David king figure that ultimately we realize is fulfilled in Jesus. The Psalms tell us about Jesus, but even more than that, as Jesus grew up in this world, the Psalms were what trained Jesus himself. Jesus sung these songs before we did. Jesus was formed by these songs, and as he learned them and internalized them, he too, in a way even greater than Paul, became like a tree planted by streams of water with resilient joyfulness. And we are told this can be ours as well. We can sing with Jesus. We can be trained with Him to learn how to be resilient in our joy. 
And one of the Psalms, I think that's probably one of the great ones for us to go to. If we, are, if we are seeking to learn how to respond to those terrible moments of difficulty and anxiety, is the Psalm that Jennifer just read, Psalm 69. As no doubt you, you sense from the very outset, this is a Psalm of someone who is facing deep, deep difficulty. It, it, you know, from the very beginning, there's this kind of vivid language. And if, by the way, if you don't have it open before you, I will be kind of just like walking through this. We obviously won't be able to cover every verse. It's a long psalm, but we will be kind of like working through this. And at the very beginning, save me, God, for the water has risen to my neck. Um, literally, it's actually the water has come up to my life. And there's no good way of translating that. But it's not just kind of here. It's like so much so that you can barely breathe is the image. Um, I remember when I was a little kid, before I could swim, I was playing in a pond and someone threw a ball and I went out to get it and it got me just beyond the ability that I could kind of reach. And so I would have to kind of hop to be able to breathe and, and I panicked. I didn't know what to do. And uh, thankfully, eventually, a mom who was on the shore saw me, uh, pulled me back. But um, the thing that I found just so, as, you know, in reflection after, so, so disorienting was not just the fear of drowning, although that was the case. It was the sense that I felt completely covered. I couldn't be seen. I was immersed. I kind of almost felt lost in the water. And, and that's, that's what he's describing here, the feeling of that. I mean, he continues on with the same image. I, I have sunk in deep mud, and there is no footing. I have come into deep water, and a flood sweeps over me. Have you ever experienced anxiety or difficulty so great that you feel like you kind of are losing your sense of even who you are in the midst of it? For me, this kind of thing will sometimes happen in, in the middle of night. I will, I can think of times where there's like some sort of fear or some sort of idea has, has gripped so much a hold of me, and I know I'm supposed to be okay. I know I'm supposed to be confident in God, and I try to pray but like clinging to the reality of what I know is real, it's like I'm trying to climb a pole that's covered with grease. I just can't, I can't grasp anything. I, I used to think that anxiety was kind of more a matter of, of choice, of willpower. I just need to stop worrying. It's about kind of getting a mindset. And I've come to think differently more recently. But you and I both know that there are certain times that our body responds long before we have any choice in the matter, that certain things will grip us and, and we'll feel it. We'll feel that heart just starting to pound. Our shoulders might tighten up. We feel hot, maybe even sweating. That, that surge of adrenaline makes sleep impossible. We're not hungry and our mind is just racing and racing and racing and it feels like everything is so loud that our voice, our inner voice, is almost impossible to hear. And, and that's, that's what this psalmist is facing. And in, that, in the midst of those feelings, God just seems so impossibly far away. Verse 3, he says, I'm weary from my crying. Not, not just tears he's talking about. He's talking about calling out. He's been crying out so long and so hard that his throat is parched. And as he looks for God, all he sees is darkness. Do you know at all what that is like? To be so overcome viscerally, physically, by anxiety or despair that God seems impossibly far. What do you do? What is the way of the tree, to use the previous image? What, what does Jesus do? 
Because again, we've said these are songs that Jesus sang before us. In fact, this is one of the most quoted songs in the New Testament, frequently speaking of Jesus himself. What we see here is a psalm that actually trained Jesus. When we see where Jesus goes when he goes to the cross, Psalm 69 almost inevitably is in the background. It is what shaped him. And if we listen to it, it can shape and form us as well so that we too can respond as Jesus responded through his strength. This morning, I want us to just notice four, four steps that are taken in this psalm that can move through and, and bring to a place of resilient joy. And let me just say from the outset, what I'm not trying to say here is this psalm says, do these four tricks and your life will be great. This is not like clickbait. This is training. These are four postures that through practice, through repeated again and again, they lead us and train us into the kind of life that we see in Jesus and that we see in Paul can be ours as well as we listen and allow this to shape us. So, so four, four steps that I, I want us to notice about how the psalmist responds to this overwhelming anxiety. And the first one is simply that we see in the psalm that he names his need. Maybe that's already obvious from the first verses that we have seen. But I, I don't know if you are like this, but I think growing up in Sunday school, one of the things I heard repeatedly was how Israel in the wilderness, they complained against God. They kept on complaining. And so I think one of the things that that kind of taught me to think is that I kind of need to be polite in my prayers and, and, and not speak too much negatively because I don't want to complain. I completely misunderstood what was going on there. The problem with complaining in the Old Testament was when people turned away from God and complained to Moses. If the people of Israel instead had turned away from Moses and complained to God, everything would be different because the problem with complaining is it turns them away, not towards God. Here, what do we see? We see someone who in great detail describes exactly what is going on, not just kind of a, in an objective way. God knows I mean, we'll see in verses 7 through 12 what, what is causing all of this despair. But he spends a lot of time just naming before God what is going on in his soul. Not because God needs to know, but because he needs to trust it to God. A, a friend of mine in a previous church, was, uh, he fought in Vietnam. Um, and when he came back, as many soldiers who fought in Vietnam did, he came back haunted, broken, and, and he says what haunted him most was not the loss of friends, it was the awareness that he took the life of others. And he, for, for years, he said he could not get past that. And then eventually, actually inspired by the Psalms, he decided that the right thing to do was to write a lament, to just put to words his anguish before God, his grief. This is what happened. This is why I am so torn up. And he said it was only as he named it before God that he began to heal. When we are faced with troubles that we don't know what to do with, let us first, before God, name it in his presence and allow him to begin to deal with it. So we see a naming of need, and then we see the psalmist also knowing what God knows or seeking to know what God knows. In, in these opening verses, even as there is this description, there's this pause, right in verse 5, perhaps you noticed, where after talking about how disoriented he feels, verse 5, God, you know. You know my foolishness. And the point here is saying, even as I'm being 
I'm being betrayed by others and accused by others. Lord, you know what's really going on. You know they're wrong, even though you see some other things. Or again, verse 19 in the second half, he does something similar. Lord, you know the insults I endure, my shame and disgrace. You are aware of all my adversaries. Now, why is it that he so needs to know what you know, God? Well, we see the situation in 7 through 12. The thing that is making him feel so overwhelmed that he is losing his sense of sanity and self is that he is being falsely accused by by pretty much everyone. So in verse 7, I have endured insults because of you. His love for God has caused others to mock him. He says more in verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. What does that mean? Verse 10, I mourned and fasted. So I think what we're supposed to understand here is this this person who's writing deeply loves God and, and, and loves people being able to connect to God. And yet as he looks around, he sees corruption. He sees a problem. He sees a people who do not know God, and it so tears him apart that he mourns, that he fasts, that he longs to see it changed, and people around him look at him and start just kind of mocking him. Like, why do you have to be such a Debbie Downer? Why do you have to be so intense? You're just ridiculous. You're just going down the wrong path. And, and everyone is saying that. He says, even my family, my closest family is saying the same thing. And Perhaps even as we're hearing these words like zeal for your house consume me, we might remember how, how that's describing Jesus in, in the Gospel of John as Jesus goes into the very temple and sees that there's all these things that are standing in the way of people coming to know God and pray to Him. He is angry. He turns over tables and the disciples remember later, zeal for your house consumed me. And no one at the time got it. They thought He was being ridiculous. And that's what's going on here is this psalmist is feeling overwhelmed. And perhaps we go, oh, that's, that's not what I would have guessed. How come just everyone mocking him is, is bringing him so low? I would have thought it would be something worse than that. Maybe some of you are thinking that others of you perhaps are not because some of you maybe have experienced public ridicule. Maybe you said something that deeply embarrassed you or someone else said something that just brought you down. Perhaps even for some of you, you can think of moments that are years ago, and even still, when you think of it, your face starts to turn red, and you get really uncomfortable. Why does that so deeply affect us? Because we're not these airtight, separate individuals. Our sense of self is not entirely just possessed. We, what our reality is and how we think of ourselves, we depend on others to help give us a sense of who we are. And so you can only imagine if this person is, is the object of ridicule so that when drunks are getting drunk, this is the joke they go to. How utterly disorienting this must be. But what does he do? You know God. You know. I, everyone else is saying wrong things. But God, you see clearly, even if I don't right now. And there is something just about that awareness of what God knows. That even if he's like an airplane flying in the fog where he can't see up or down, this is his anchor. This is what orients him. You know God. The Apostle Paul does something very similar. In, um, in one time in 1 Corinthians, 
where people are kind of ridiculing him. He says, you know what, what you say for me in judgment really doesn't matter. Honestly, the way I judge myself doesn't matter either because neither of us are seeing very clearly. But what, here's what I know. God will judge, and he will bring the truth to light one day. And that is his anchor. And when we are finding ourselves dizzied and disoriented, turning to God and recognizing that God knows that my sense of what's going on and your sense of what's going on, they're not the real thing. What is real is what God sees. That anchors the soul. So he names his need. He seeks to know what God knows. And third, he takes action in asking. So our psalm really is kind of divided in thirds. We've kind of been focusing on the first third, verses 1 through 12. The second one in verses 13 through 29, are framed by kind of this moment where he kind of almost recollects himself. He comes to himself. Perhaps you notice it because it has this idea that's repeated. Verse 13, as for me. Suddenly it's like, here's who I am, Lord. And, and verse 29, something very similar. As for me. And, and notice how he kind of reorients himself, how he kind of finds himself. It is through asking God, as for me, Lord, my prayer to you is for a time of favor. In your abundant faithful love, answer me with salvation. Verse 29, as for me, poor in pain, let your salvation protect me, God. There is something about him turning to God and asking for salvation that allows him to be him. Because, and, and we know this, when we experience like the deepest kind of anxiety, part of what is so hard and so paralyzing is that we can do absolutely nothing nothing. I mean, sometimes when our mind is spinning around, we're trying to do something in our brain, but the thing that makes us so overwhelmed is when we feel powerless, when our entire sense of agency is taken away from us and we have nothing to do. But what this psalm helps us to see is that is not actually how things are. There always is an action we can take before the things that overwhelm us. There always is a way that we can channel all of our energy towards an act, and that act we see here is in asking. In asking God, bringing all of our longing to God in requests. Do you, did you notice how it's like... Uh, like this rapid-fire set of requests beginning in the second half. So in the verses 1 through 4, where he speaks about the, this drowning, now beginning in verse 14, he just he, he asks about all of these. Rescue me from the mud. Don't let me sink. Let me be rescued from those who hate me. Don't let the flood water sleep over, sweep over me. Answer me, Lord. Turn, don't hide your face from your servants. Answer me quickly again and again and again. He asks and asks and asks and asks and brings everything to God. Again, I want to suggest to you that if you and I try to be more polite than the Psalms are with God, we're missing something. Yes, when we're talking to God, it is right for us to have a posture where we remember He is God and we are not, where we say, Your will be done. But at least for me, sometimes I feel like I really should keep my list short. And that is not what we have here. Do you realize that it is utterly impossible for you to ask too much of God. It is utterly impossible for something to be too small for God. He asks boldly again and again because he knows 
verse 16, he says, your faithful love is good. In keeping with your abundant compassion, turn to me. He knows that his God has a faithful love. He knows that his God has abundant, overwhelming compassion. And because of that, he comes boldly and just asks and asks and asks. Not anything too big, not anything too small, and not anything even too inappropriate. I mean, did you notice the second set of requests, but the first one was kind of talking about his feeling of drowning. The second one is talking about his enemies. And what does he say beginning in verse 22? Let their table set before them be a snare. Verse 24, pour out your rage on them and let your burning anger overtake them. Verse 28, let them be erased from the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. These desires, too, he brings before God and asks. These prayers, I think, unsettle us, right? We ask, how does this fit with when Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, which is, I think, the right question for us to ask. And I would suggest, and I wish we had more time to develop this, that it is only because we can pray these kinds of prayers that it is possible for us to love our enemies. See, when he is praying this prayer, this is not just a prayer for like a vendetta, some kind of petty desire for revenge. He's in the middle of a time where lies are being treated like the truth, where he's being made to look like a fool even though he's faithful, and where wickedness has the appearance of righteousness, and it is wrong. And it is unjust. And his longing that just overpowers him is that truth would come out, that righteousness would prevail. That's when he says something like, let him not be recorded with the righteous. He's like, don't, don't allow him to be included amongst people who are declared righteous when he is not, because that's wrong. And, and he appeals to it not just because it's something that that matters to him, but he knows it's something that matters to God. When he says, pour out your rage on them, let your burning anger overtake them, he prays because he knows that as much as he hates lies and injustice, God hates it even more. And as angry as he is, he knows that God is even more furious about that. And it is only as he can pray those prayers that there's any possibility of him actually being able to love his enemies and forgive them. Why do I say that? Well, let me try with kind of a story. There's a friend of mine who, as a teen, was sexually abused, and as, uh, as is tragically often the case, um, when she came with charges against this person, it was, you know, her word against his, he called her a liar, and, and he went off without any consequences, and that continues to be the case this day, which is awful. It's just awful. And this friend of mine has said the only way that she has been able to move forward because there is something that is just wrong, right? Lies should not reign. Injustice should not just continue. It is right to long for that to be changed. So what do you do with that? And she said, here's, here's the only solution that I've known. The only way that I can handle this rightly is to realize that I can bring this to God. And as much as this bothers me, it bothers God even more. And that I know that one way or another, truth will be brought out. Either this person will be brought to an end of himself and a kind of death of repentance as he clings to the cross, and in that way I will be vindicated, or God will judge him 
But either way, I can leave it to God, and it is only through that that she has learned to be able to forgive him and actually wish well upon her wrongdoer. See, whenever we keep any of our longings or desires from God and just say, well, I shouldn't talk to God about that, they don't go away. We just kind of end up feeling like we've got to deal with them ourselves. The only right way when we are facing this overwhelming sense of longing and powerlessness is to name and ask God for everything that is on our heart. That is what we do. We move. Our action is to ask. So finally, the fourth thing that we see in the the final part of our passage beginning in verse 30 is remarkably, this psalm turns to thankfulness. I say remarkably because this is not one of those psalms where like it's taking place over time and then the last six verses happen like years later where something has happened to change the situation. No, this is just as bad as it was a few verses earlier in terms of this person continues to be falsely accused. This person continues to be mocked. Nothing has changed except now he's not saying I am drowning. He's, he's moving to praise. Do you notice this in, in these verses where he says in 30, I will praise God's name with song and exalt him with thanksgiving. How? How does he get here? Well, I think Psalm 69 is, is basically telling us how through what we've seen. As he's encountering this overwhelming anxiety, him, him naming these things before God, him knowing what God knows, Him bringing all of his longing, acting by asking, that has brought him to the place where he can now turn in thanksgiving. Now, let me just say something clearly. There is not anything automatic or immediate about this process. In fact, we see some Psalms where someone is still deeply stuck in the before I can thank God. Like Psalm 88 concludes, darkness is my only friend. It will take days, weeks, months, sometimes even longer for us to learn to respond in this way. But I think what Psalm 69 and the rest of the Psalter is telling us is as we turn towards God in this fashion, there will come a time that we can even still rejoice. Because what's happened through these steps is he's turned from his problems as big as they are, and in every way he has turned to God and realized God is even bigger. And as as awful as the things he's enduring are, God is greater and more beautiful. And seeing that allows him to begin to expect. Do do you see how, how he recognized things about God? The humble will see and rejoice. You seek God, take heart, for the Lord listens to the needy. And does not despise his own who are prisoners. He sees who God is. And because of that, he knows that he can expect what is good. God, he says in the penultimate verse, will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. They will live there and possess it. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know whether he's going to be vindicated next week or not before he dies. But what he does know is God will be good. He is good. And so he's beginning to anticipate the future answer to prayer. And as he begins to imagine that, even as he still is in the situation he is in, he is able to give thanks. 
This, this is what we've been talking about. This is the tree planted by streams of water, able to rejoice even in times of difficulty. This is what we see in the life of Paul. In that passage from Philippians that I mentioned earlier, he goes on to say after he says, I will continue to rejoice. Here's why. I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you hear what he's saying? I can rejoice because I know where this is going. I can rejoice because you have prayed. And I know this is in God's hands, so I can already begin to taste what God will do, even though I don't know exactly what it will be. He actually says more than that. He says, I can rejoice because of the Spirit of Jesus who is with me. Because whether we've named him or not, he is the one we've been talking about all along throughout this. Do you know, in Hebrews, it actually tells us that as Jesus was walking to his death, as he was moving to the cross, even then he was anticipating joy. It says, who for the joy that was set before him went to the cross. This is not because Jesus was completely immune to anxiety or fear. Just shortly before going to the cross, he tells his disciples, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. And when he's saying even unto death, he's saying, I am so physically overwhelmed that my body is, is, is almost feeling like it's going to end me before I even get to the cross. So how can he be experiencing such a weight of fear and yet who for the joy that is set before him moves to the cross, I think we are given the scenes in Gethsemane so that we can understand how. What does he do? He, he comes before God and names things as honestly as possible. He asks what seems like the inappropriate question, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And again and again, he does this until he is so, I think, aware of who God is again. He is so convinced of the goodness of God that he can move forward trusting that God will be good even through this suffering. And of course, he was. And now the risen Christ does not leave us alone, but his spirit continues to be with us as, as we face these things. He, he, he gives us promises to let us know it's going to be okay. Blessed are you who mourn, he says, for you will be comforted. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. He has kind of walked this way before us, and he sings this psalm with us and to us that we might sing it as well. I don't know what people are facing this morning. Some of you might be feeling like you're facing nothing. This is just a great week. But some of you might feel just overwhelmed. Whatever your need might be, whether it's, it's health, sickness issues, whether it's employment, whether it's guilt and you just feel overcome by it, there is nothing that you can name to God that is too big for him or too inconsequential for him to care about. The way to a life that is good, the way to a life that is strong comes by coming before God and turning with everything before him, naming our need and asking. 
And I would like us to do that even now, to take a moment, whether it is our sins that we want to confess, I invite us to do that, or if there are things that we are overwhelmed by, to turn to God in prayer, let's spend some time in silent prayer together, and then I will lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.